Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. The book of Jeremiah, it is the second largest book in the Hebrew Bible. It's the largest prophetic books, and it's the second to the book of the Psalms. And Jeremiah, the prophet, is the most significant prophet of the last years of the kingdom of Judah's independent life. Jeremiah lives for a good amount of time. He is around at at the start, uh, or during the ministry, during the rule, that is, of the great king Josiah. If you remember Josiah from those history books, he's one of the few really good kings who follows in the way of the Lord and administers righteousness and justice justly. Jeremiah, his ministry begins while Josiah is in office, and it goes all the way through the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah sees the superpower that was Assyria give way to the superpower that becomes Babylon. And if you remember from the history books, it is the empire of Babylon that crushes Judah, that takes over the city of Jerusalem, and even destroys the temple of the Lord. So now, in the Babylonian invasion, just to give you a recap of the the histories, there's multiple invasions. And at times, the people of Israel are like, okay, the Lord is punishing us, but it's a slap on the wrist, and that's it. And the Lord would never allow his temple to go under. And it becomes the job of the prophet Jeremiah to be the negative Nancy, the naysayer, to say, no, There isn't some magical power associated with the temple. Remember, we live under a conditional covenant. And if we do not obey the Lord, the Lord will leave the temple. Now, a lot of what we now call false prophets said, no, that won't happen. That could never happen. And we even see in the Psalms, right, Texts that seem to suggest the Lord will never leave his temple. And even in Isaiah, this is again, Isaiah is before this fall, or at least the first chapters of Isaiah. And he seems to suggest, oh God, like I don't think God's going to leave his temple. Jeremiah makes clear things have gotten so bad in their relationship with God. We have broken the covenant to such a degree that the Lord is going to remove himself from the temple, but the temple will be crushed. So, as you probably can imagine, Jeremiah was not a very popular person. And the one thing people oftentimes take from the book of Jeremiah is that he is the weeping prophet, that he laments quite a bit, and he's even like, Lord, I don't even want to do this, but you're making me do this. Uh, And we'll get to that 
in a minute. But all that to say, the book of Jeremiah is a little bit like the book of Isaiah and the book of First and Second Kings put into one. And what I mean by that is that there are a lot of poetic oracles, but there are also, there's what Jeremiah taught, like in Isaiah, but also biographies about Jeremiah's life, like in the history books of First and Second Kings. In fact, the ending of Second Kings and the ending of the book of Jeremiah are almost word for word the same. But we're going to get there. So, uh, the book of Jeremiah can't be divided into sections as neatly as some of the other books we've looked at. Um, it's just, it's a little bit of like kind of an anthology. It's all over the place. It's not chronological in some places. And at points, that seems very purposeful, and we'll get to that. But at other points, it does seem like the book of Jeremiah had a long life, a long life of, uh, until it reached its final form. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because Jeremiah is preaching for decades before the Lord finally tells him to write down on the scroll, to write this book. And as we'll see as we go through the book of Jeremiah, there are times when his scroll is destroyed. His original scroll is destroyed by the people who think the temple can't be destroyed, and he has to start over again. So a lot of people think this probably happened a number of times. Nevertheless, we can divide up the book of Jeremiah in four sections. It's a little bit artificial, I'm telling you that up front, but it makes, it makes some sense. So, the first section are the first 25 chapters, and they are mostly concerned with the teaching of Jeremiah. We find a lot of his oracles in this section. That doesn't mean there are no oracles in the other sections, but they're predominantly in these first 25 chapters. The second section, which are chapters 26 through 45, these are concerned with the stories about Jeremiah. Again, this is more like the first and second Kings. The first part is more like the book of Isaiah. Now, I'm just throwing this in there because this is an example of how like, this is just thrown right in there. And it doesn't seem like for any good reason, except maybe there is, which I'll get to in a minute. But the, this is one of the most famous passages in the whole book and one of the most quoted uh, passages from Jeremiah in the New Testament. And this is what's called, often called the Book of Consolation. And in that section is where we hear about the New Covenant. When you think of the word the New Testament, the books after Jesus' life, all that means is the New Covenant. We've named the entire Second Testament after what's talked about in these chapters. So they're very important. So those are put right smack dab in the middle of the stories about Jeremiah. Now, verses, or chapters 20, 46 through 51, these are back to oracles. Now, these are oracles of indictments against other nations, against Babylon and against Assyria, against these other places. And finally, chapter 52 is what I mentioned a second ago. It's almost the exact same ending that we find at the end of 2 Kings, and it's it essentially relates how Jerusalem is finally taken, and thus Jeremiah's prophecies are proven to be true. 
So before we get into this, and if this is a tad confusing, it's merely because the book is a tad confusing. Again, as I said, it's, it's not linear. It's a little bit all over the place. The divisions I'm making are a tad artificial. That doesn't mean the book isn't important. But for most of these classes, I don't let you stop me to the end. For this one, I'll let you stop me because the book is a little bit all over the place. And I'm, mostly I'm going to say in response, well, <laughs> I don't have an answer to that question. Probably be because you're trying to figure out the timeline of when he said this. But the book kind of eludes that kind of, uh, of nailing that down. So I want to begin by talking about the key themes of the book. Now, some of the key themes of the book are, number one, it's probably the sovereignty of God. We're going to see in a minute that in the book of Jeremiah, the author really emphasizes that the actions of Assyria, the actions of Babylon in destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple. These are actually the acts of God through his servant Babylon. It really is this this notion in Jeremiah, very much so, and similar in Daniel, which we'll see soon, God is completely in control, even when these terrible things happen to us, to our city, and to our temple. That's not the last word, but I'm going to end it on that. That's one of the themes. The second theme, the second major part of this book, is the the, the call to repentance. If you will repent. And a lot of this book isn't necessarily addressed to the individual Israelites. This book, interestingly enough, is addressed to the priests, the prophets, the rulers, the people in power. It's not that ordinary people aren't addressed by this text. But it is especially a call to the monarch, to the religious leaders. You are not doing your job. Repent. The thing is, as we see in Jeremiah, there's a limitation on how long we can repent. We see at a certain point in the book that repentance is no longer an option. It's been clear cut off from the people of God. The people of God at that point will be judged. And it reminds me, if any of you are in Game of Thrones, kind of the the gloomy, uh, uh, that feeling of the inevitability. We will be crushed because of what we've done, and justly so. And there's no turning back. So on that depressing note, you can see why Jeremiah may not have been the most well-received of the prophets. What's really interesting also in the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah calls the people of God to pray for Babylon, the very empire that destroys the temple, destroys the city, that pulls a whole bunch of their people into exile. He says, pray for the benefit of the city. And I think this is just as good for Christians here today. We may feel like strangers in a strange land, but as Jeremiah says, plant your fields, have your families, pray for the city and work for its benefit. So again, interestingly enough, Babylon is viewed as God's servant, and while you're there, work for its good, even pray for its good. Finally, as New, New Testament, New Covenant believers, we see in 
this book, the new covenant. And we see in these prophets a slight shift away from the do this and you shall live notion of the Mosaic covenant, right? To a only from the outside can we be plucked out of the mire. And ultimately, the law will no longer be on tablets of stone, but it will be written on our hearts. All right, so that's a view at the themes. Why don't we take a look at the the hundred foot view? So, and again, just to keep it in our minds, for those of you who are about to read Jeremiah or did, or maybe one day want to, chapters 1 through 25 are the prophetic oracles, 26 through 52 are more biographical accounts. That's a little too simple, but for our own minds, I think that's helpful. The front part of the book is more oracles and poetry, more like Isaiah. The latter part is more like Second Kings, more a bi- biography, more an account of the nation's so, let's start with the first part. Uh, Jeremiah 1, 25, 1 through chapter 25. And I'm going to call this a collection of the prophets, oracles, and prayers. So the book begins kind of with like, uh, maybe not a thesis, but it gives you what's coming from the beginning. In the first chapter, in, it begins with Jeremiah's call. Just like in Isaiah, it begins with Isaiah's call. But in this call... Uh, I'm just going to read it right here. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, and doesn't that sound a whole lot like Isaiah that Matthew talked about with the touching the mouth, purifying? I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And interestingly enough, this book has a whole lot more of the uproot and tear down. Maybe that's why it's kind of doubled up there. But this book also, and Jeremiah's call, is also about building and planting. So think, think of that as we go through. Jeremiah's call to uproot, tear down, to build, and to plant. Now, the opening oracle uh, that we see in Jeremiah sees Israel's history by analogy to marriage. We haven't done the book of Hosea yet, but for you, for you who know it, this is why some scholars say that Jeremiah is drawing on Hosea here. He's drawing on Hosea because he talks, just like Hosea did, uh, about the people of God in the role of the faithless covenant partner. They're like a faithless spouse. And in a, a very brief fashion, it represents much of the prophet's entire message to, Jer- to Judah and Jerusalem. And in that it is merely this, merely what we've heard throughout the Old Testament so far. That God had given Israel the promised land. The people had made it an abomination. And so, as we see, what I mentioned earlier, the leadership comes under withering criticism. Now, Don't take my word for it. Here we see in the next chapter, who is addressed here? The priests, the handlers of Torah, the rulers and the prophets. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? The handlers of Torah did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me, and the prophets depended on Baal and pursued worthless things. In the book of Jeremiah... 
we see, interestingly enough, when Jeremiah is under trial, who are the people who stand up for Jeremiah? It's not the priests. It's not people like me. It's, a, every, it's the lay people. They're the ones who say, no, Jeremiah is onto something. We have to listen to them. In this book, it really is. So this book is judgment on me. So you guys can rest easy on this one, at least <laughs> for the most part. Um, but yes, this is, it's really focusing on how the people in charge are the ones who have failed. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, in these opening chapters, the, these opening oracles, there is a call for repentance. And there is that notion of if you repent, this will be undone. It may seem like this is inevitable because Babylon is so powerful. But actually, if you repent, God will make a way out of nowhere. And in Jeremiah's sermon, uh, he says that if you don't repent, Jerusalem's temple will be made like Shiloh. And does anyone remember what happened to Shiloh? We went over that a a while, a a couple weeks ago. So I don't expect everyone to remember. But Shiloh is when the Philistines came and overran during the time of Eli and Samuel. So he's essentially saying, if you don't repent, the temple itself will be overrun. And again, and I'm just reiterating this for effect, but it really was, maybe even by prophets such as Isaiah at the time, um, because they just didn't have as full a revelation that the people of God, they might lose land, they might even lose the city, though probably not. But God would never allow his temple to be violated. Jeremiah here opposes all magical associations with the temple and argued um, that the mere presence of this was not enough to save Jerusalem. And when I was thinking of this, I thought about Notre Dame uh, when, the fires, uh, when the fire was happening and just looking on Twitter and seeing everyone just kind of in shock and in horror. And imagine uh, being in ancient Israel and your Notre Dame is the temple and they're like, this is it. This thing could never come down. Uh, and then here's this guy saying the trajectory is that it's coming down. Now, in chapters 11 through 20, we see Jeremiah's famous laments. Um, We're let in on the fact that the rulers simply will not hear what he has to say. Again, interesting. The people will, but the the, the religious rulers and the political rulers won't hear it. So he's rejected. He's treated harshly. Again, he undergoes this trial where all the leaders are against him and only the people stand for him and the religious leaders and and political leaders are like, the people don't know what they're talking about. So now, in his laments, a lot of them look a lot like the Psalms that Doug talked about and led us through. I'm just going to read you one. And this is a beautiful one. Uh, And it's a scandalous one, too. I don't think many of us would feel comfortable talking to God this way, but this is really, this is addressed to God by Jeremiah. Lord, you seduced me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me and triumphed. I am the object of derision all day. Everybody amongst me. Every time I speak, I cry out. I call out violence and destruction. For me, the word of the Lord has become a reproach 
and a humiliation. But if I said, I will not remember him, that's God, nor speak again in God's name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire within my bones. I am weary of constraining it, and I can no longer endure it. So we see, just like we saw in the Psalms, this kind of, oh God, what have you done to me? Like, (laughs) it's pretty strong. You have seduced me, and I was deceived. Um, Why are you having me do this? this? Everyone's against me, and he even flirts with, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to remember you, Lord, but I simply can't do it. I, uh, I am yours, despite all of this. Um, so I, I love that one. I, I don't know about you, but I, <laughs> uh, I probably haven't had as much justification as Jeremiah, but I've definitely cried out to God like that when I stubbed my toe. Um, but for Jeremiah's abuse that he received comes as a result of his public role. Uh, and it's clear that there was a, lot of, there was a great personal cost. Um, but though what he said in his day and his time was unpopular, and though he was beset with these great difficulties, he sought to be obedient to God's call. It's, uh, if you remember back in uh, the book of Genesis, right? Um, uh, is it Abraham? Now I'm forgetting. Uh, who is essentially told... Bargaining with God. If there are ten uh, righteous in the city, will you not? Jeremiah is the one, the one righteous one, uh, the one weeping. And we'll see in the New Testament, if you remember, right, when Jesus says to his followers, who do you say that I am? One of the people they say, are you Jeremiah? Uh, Now I'm just thinking of things I can cut out, but I do want to say this. So in chapters 21 through 22, there is an even further critique of the kings. So we talked about the critique of the prophets and the priests. But he goes really hardcore into Judah's king. And again, Jeremiah's ministry started with the great king Josiah, right? The good king, the reformer king. But right after Josiah, Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, he goes right back to the old ways. Um, And Jeremiah essentially says to Jehoiakim, the covenant I made with David, your father, Josiah, your father, you need to uphold. You need to uphold justice and righteousness in the realm, and you are not. And I didn't include this because I didn't want to go on too long, but the things the king didn't uphold were the king did not make room for the widow, for the orphan, for the immigrant, etc. Um, those are the things that are really highlighted. Um, now, the book doesn't just give indications of, of uh, conflicts between Jeremiah and the kings. It also uh, shows that there were conflicts between Jeremiah and other prophetic figures. Um, again, I mentioned earlier, some people were like, well, the Babylonians are here and they've taken over a lot, but this is just a slap on the wrist. It's a blip. Um, Jeremiah, imagine the most unpopular message of all. Like, nope, it's only going to get worse and far worse. Uh, He famously says, why do you say peace, peace, when there is no peace? Uh, Jeremiah is giving it to them straight. Um, Now, Jeremiah also, again, as I said earlier, he presents Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in particular as 
instruments of God's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And he says, to be clear, you think this is a blip, but this is going to be for 70 years. So get used to it. Um, And this is at the end of those oracles. So the end of chapter 1 through 25, it ends with essentially, (laughs) the section ends with the hopeful note that not only will we be crushed, but we will be in exile for 70 years. And this is God's plan. Uh, So get used to it. Go ahead. Is that a a literal 70 years, or is because seven such a symbolic number? It seems that both uh, 1 and 2 Kings also use it as 70 years. So in this case, uh, it seems that they're trying to be literal, but could there be metaphorical purposes too? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know, that's what I'll say. But I think, sure, I'm glad your wheels are turning because that means you're, you, you, you know your Old Testament by now. Like some, these, these numbers pop up again and again. And yes, they're not always literal. But in this case, it seems like they were for 70 years. Um, so let's go on to the second section. Uh, Jeremiah 26 through 52. Um, let me get this really fast. Well, I'll figure that out later. So we go from the oracles, the bad news, uh, what Jeremiah is saying to the people, to more on his biography and the hope. Um, So in the first first few chapters of this section, we see Jeremiah, he starts to enact his messages. He has these symbolic acts. And I'm not going to go over all of them, but one of the actions he does is that... uh, After Jerusalem had surrendered to the Babylonians uh, and King Jehoiakim, not Kim, Kin, yeah, it's really hard to keep track of all these, uh, he was taken into exile. So Jerusalem is besieged, the king is taken into exile, but at this time, the prophets are still saying, oh, you know, this is a slap on the wrist, the king will be back any minute, God will rise up and kick these Babylonians out. Our fortunes will be reversed. But Jeremiah is just kind of like, you know, he's got to be shaking his head at this. And so instead of merely preaching, he decides that he's going to have a symbol. He walks around the city with this yoke, and it symbolizes the fact that the Lord had yoked Judah and Jerusalem in servitude to Nebuchadnezzar, and that this wasn't going to stop anytime soon. And one of the few prophets who are named by name, um, King, or prophet Hananiah, he doesn't, like the other prophets, doesn't like this one bit. And he, in his own symbolic visual act, he takes Jeremiah's yoke and he destroys it. And it's a symbol that, no, in fact, we might be under that yoke right now, but in a second, it's going to be cast away. Um, and the book reveals that, well, as you read on, you see that Jeremiah's predictions do come true. So that reveals Hananiah as a false prophet. Um, and there's a lot going on in, with that in Babylon, or in, in, um, sorry, in Jeremiah, because the book of Jeremiah makes clear that the future of the remnant of Israel lies not so much in the Jews who stayed behind or in the Jews who left to go to Egypt. But the remnant are those who went to exile in Babylon that heeded Jeremiah's word and they planted their gardens, had families, prayed for the city. Um, 
So Hananiah is not just a false prophet, but it's questionable, is he even among the remnant, according to the book of Jeremiah? Now it's, so as I mentioned earlier, and let me actually bring this back up, uh, because I think this can be helpful. There's kind of a break in this, so I said this goes 26 through 45, but there's a break with these chapters here. And it's interesting why Jeremiah decides to put what we've called the Book of Consolation here. Because uh, it's this part of the story we read about the new covenant uh, that God is going to make with his people, particularly the people who went down to, in exile to Babylon. Uh, and Jeremiah prophesies um, that until judgment has been served, we're not going to be okay. We're not going to be back from exile. But he says, essentially, and this is where it gets interesting in the history of the Old Testament, whereas early on in the Hebrew Bible, there tends to be kind of, God is viewed as very gracious, right? right? Both before and after the law is given, the Israelites make big mistakes. And nevertheless, even though the covenant is very conditional, if you do this, this, blessings, curses, God is shown to be very gracious, very patient. But it is here in this book and in some of the other books that we see an emphasis on God providing uh, for something that the people just couldn't do on their own, that they were essentially unable to do for themselves. Um, And this is why a lot of the New Testament writers like Paul and the book of Hebrews essentially and, and some other sections really latch on to this um, and start to say things like, well, the plan all along was that God had to do this for us. Um, we could not obey the tablets that had the, the commandments written down. They have to be written on our hearts. Um, God has to do something from the outside. And there's this notion of an unconditional covenant in this new covenant he prophesies. A covenant not based on the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy, but something that God will accomplish um, on God's own. Now again, that doesn't mean that we're, you know, we're, we're supposed to be loyal to God, but it, it is pretty wild. It's not just the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament too, this hope that there will be a day when a new covenant is in town. Um, when despite our stuff, God's going to accomplish for us what we can't do on our own. But it's not just the good news of forgiveness. It is that the law will be written on our hearts. It's the good news of rectification. That you and I, one day, the people of God, will no longer turn to our own vomit, to the sins that we do over and over again. Those, char- those traits that we don't really like about ourselves, we find ourselves falling into. So sure, this is about forgiveness and something that, that, which is something that Jeremiah really talks about, but it's also about rectification. The law being so written on your heart that you're not going to be, that I'm not going to be as selfish as I normally am. The New Testament community Calls when we finally have this, you know, fixed body of writings. What do they call it? The New Testament, the New Covenant, uh, and it all comes back to here. So now we see this. This is one more uh, symbolic act I'll give you that Jeremiah does. 
he buys a field from his cousin as the Babylonians are besieging the city. It's the worst time to buy land, right? Because the Babylonians are about to make it theirs. We see that this is going to happen. And Jeremiah does it. And why does he do it? Because he's saying, this isn't the end. We will be in the land again. God will do for us what we couldn't do. We will come back into the land. And a lot of early Christians have done a lot with that. Um, So again, terrible time to buy property. The reason why Jeremiah does it is because he's showing that God is going to make the way out of no way. We're going to be in exile for a while. But don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Now, I'm going to skip over. So chapters 39 through 44 uh, really just kind of cover the time from the fall of the city to the forced settlement of Jeremiah in Egypt. He's forced to go to Egypt. So it's interesting, right? He kind of emphasizes that the remnant are among the exiles in Babylon, and he doesn't even get put with them. He, go, he, he has to go to, to, to Egypt. And really, his story kind of ends there. And Jews of the ancient world, they're not comfortable with that. If you, a lot of the intertestamental literature, um, Jeremiah had the scribe, whose name is Baruch, and you'll see a lot of the Deutero, or the Apocrypha books. There's a, a book of Jeremiah. There's multiple books of Baruch. <coughs> And these people will think, well, Jeremiah was so faithful. God's not just going to leave him in Egypt, is he? Um, and actually, those are great books. They may not be in our, our scriptures, but they're, they're really helpful for understanding the New Testament. Um, so, but we're going to jump ahead to a part that I think is more interesting. <laughs> and that is chapters 46 through 51. And these are prophecies about other nations. And the reason I find this interesting is something I've already kind of given away. uh, But it's essentially that the kingdom of Babylon, which you would think all Jews, right, who've experienced this exile from this foreign power, you'd be encouraged to hate them with the utmost hatred. But there's kind of a number of ways Jeremiah wants us to look at Babylon. First, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are viewed as servants of the Lord who are employed to do his bidding. Remember, God is really, really sovereign in the book of Jeremiah. He's in control of all of this. Um, It's not that he's not elsewhere, but it's really emphasized here. Babylon is also the home of the exilic community, particularly that community that is the remnant, and they are worthy of our prayers. You probably heard of Tim Keller. He's a a preacher up at uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in the city. He has this whole video series about how Christians are to live in the city, in New York City, and it's all based on this. We pray for the city. We, you know, maybe we don't plant, uh, but we, we, we work for the good of the city. We're, we may be strangers and exiles in this land because our kingdom is the kingdom of heaven and our Lord is our Lord Jesus Christ. But this kind of counters that notion of like, oh, this, this, this world is dying out and, you know, it's going to be all burned. No, like Jeremiah says, pray for the good of Babylon, the good of the nation who destroyed your temple. Finally, Babylon is also ultimately depicted as an object of God's judgment, much like Israel. But Babylon is depicted 
as an object of judgment, um, not because they took out Jerusalem and the temple, or at least not for the most part. It is Babylon will be judged because they too, like these rulers of Israel, unjustly treated those under their care. They oppressed them. So God uses Babylon to execute his justice, but also Babylon will come under judgment as well. So the last chapter of the book, again, the postscript, it's essentially verbatim what we see at the end of 2 Kings. And it just talks about how Babylon fully does destroy, how the the exiles are, are in Babylon. But it also kind of, it ends on a note of hope, much like 2 Kings does. For we see that the King Jehoiachin, not Kim, Chin, he is released from his prison and he is dining with the royal elite of Babylon at the very end of this book and that it ends. So this is an exilic book. Uh, it's, it's from before the exile to during the exile, but then we see kind of that note of hope that Jeremiah, though they've not been fulfilled yet, Jeremiah's prophecy wasn't that we're in Babylon forever, but for 70 years. And here we see a glimmer of the king is now out of prison and he's in good standing with the elite of Babylon. So that's essentially the book. And again, I'm sorry that it's a little bit all over the place. I'm not trying to justify if I was a little all over the place. But this book really is kind of, it jumps around it's hard to know. Uh, there's a, a, a sermon in chapter 26 and a sermon in chapter 7, and it could be that the sermon in chapter 26 is before the one in chapter 7. But it's presented in this way, and what's interesting is that before the fall of Jerusalem and the temple is that book of consolation. So before the temple itself is even destroyed, The final form of this text has the hope before that. Again, emphasizing that God is in control, but and also emphasizing that though this terrible thing is going to happen, there is hope in the midst of all that. So I think it's interesting that this book emphasizes the sovereignty of God. It emphasizes that Jeremiah was faithful to God's call when it was unpopular, when all his other prophets were not, um, and essentially this, this idea of the new covenant, which gets taken up in the New Testament. It's taken up in the teachings of Jesus, in the teachings of Paul, in the book of Hebrews, and essentially you and I, according to the New Testament, are, new covenant, are the new covenant believers that Jeremiah was talking about, which includes The great news, right? The forgiveness of sins, but also the great news that there will be a day when these laws will be written on our hearts and that all of the character flaws, selfishness, etc. will be refined and we will be able to love and love freely. Of course, we have the notion in the New Testament that we'll have inbreakings of that in this life and we love it when it happens but it will become a true reality 
the not yet, as Jake said, will be realized. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live, or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week, with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.